This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hi, I'm Blake Chastain, and this is Powers and Principalities, a show focused on the systems and institutions that prop up white evangelical power and influence in America. Season one is focused on white evangelicalism and Christian nationalism. This is episode 12. Well, we've reached the end of season one, and my final guest is Reza Aslan. Listeners will know Reza from his books, which include Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth, and God, A Human History, as well as his work in television. Reza Aslan joined me via Zoom on Friday, November 20th, to discuss what we've learned over the past four years about America, what we've learned about Trump, the GOP, and their supporters since the election, how the geography of identity of Trumpism is constructed, as well as the consequences of Trump breaking so many forms, and the role of the media in shaping and responding to existing demand for outrage. I'm thankful that Reza was able to join me to discuss these matters and help cap off this season on Christian nationalism. The show will return for a second season in 2021. Stay tuned after the interview for more information on that. In the meantime, you can support the show in a number of ways. First, you can rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It really does help the show and only takes a second. Second, you can tell others about the show. Do you know anyone who's looking for a primer on Christian nationalism? Send them this season of Powers and Principalities. Whether it's through a historical, sociological, journalistic, theological, racial, or personal lens, the authors and experts I've spoken to this year have deep experience in this area. Finally, you can support the show by subscribing to my newsletter, The Post-Evangelical Post, at postevangelicalpost.substack.com. Free and paid tiers are available. Use the link in the show notes to get 25% off. This offer has been extended through the end of 2020. Be sure to listen to the end to hear about where Powers and Principalities is headed next. In the meantime, check out my other podcast, Exvangelical, which explores personal stories of why people leave white evangelicalism. Without further ado, Let's get to this conversation with Reza Aslan. My guest today is Reza Aslan, author of several books, including God, A Human History, Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth, and Beyond Fundamentalism. He is also professor of creative writing at the University of California, Riverside, and executive producer of Rough Draft with Reza Aslan in the CNN documentary series, Believer. Reza, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me, Blake. It's nice to be on the show. It's great that we're able to connect, and, and thank you for coming on. Uh, where I've been starting with folks uh, that have joined me since the election is really just to talk a little bit about the results of the election itself. Uh, there's this like Marshall McLuhan axiom that electric man lives mythically and all at once, and that's sort of how I feel like uh, we operate when we're all connected to Twitter right now, and we just sort of feel everything all the time. So since the election, what do you think we've learned 
about our current state here in America? And what is your overall view of the subsequent actions of Trump, the GOP, and their supporters? What have we learned about America? What we have learned about America is that over 70 million of us support a proudly and demonstrably racist, sexist, misogynist, lecherous, gluttonous, uh, narcissistic sociopath, a serial liar, a man accused, credibly accused, multiple times of rape, a man who is personally responsible for the deaths of tens of thousands of Americans uh, because of an outbreak that he refused to take seriously. About 70 million of us were willing to completely ignore those irrefutable facts um, and vote for this man. A large number of those 70 million for the simple fact that they agreed with his racist policies. I think the thing about the the Trump years that I think um, will end up becoming sort of truly the benefit of this of this period, you know, when we look back on it in history, is that if you're any kind of marginalized group in the United States, um, particularly immigrants, uh, blacks, you know, brown people, Latinos, you've probably, like myself, have been decrying the systemic racism in this country for decades. And Mm -hmm. most white people did not take you very seriously because they were unaffected by that racism. It's very difficult now to deny the role of systemic racism in the United States with a straight face. Right. uh, And I think the Trump years have, in a way, pulled the curtain back on the dark heart of the American experiment mm-hmm. and has exposed, I think, some of the things that in our uh, uber patriotic attempts to uh, present this country as the pinnacle of human civilization, right? The greatest country in the history of the world. Uh, right. Yeah. That we were able to ignore those parts of it for a long, long time. And I don't think those things are ignorable any longer. Um, the other thing that it, that it, I think, has shown, what the election has shown, is that there is a political party in the United States that, you know, has been going down this, this slide for quite some time, but has now gotten to the point where they are proudly um, ignoring democracy, um, that democracy just doesn't seem to work for them anymore, right? I mean, I think everybody everybody slammed on, you know, Mike Lee from Utah when he said proudly that America is not a democracy. Right. Um, and, and, you know, there were some clapbacks to it that said, well, you know, technically he's right. We're not a democracy. We're a republic. That's true. But usually when someone makes that argument, they're not making that argument in order to justify minority rule, <laughs> which is right. what the, the Republicans seem to be doing now. So, you know, I think for a while now we've been mired in this both sides-ism. Um, you know, this has 
primarily to do with you know the the real foundational institutional problems with the American media. Um, and that just doesn't work anymore. Like when you know when one side is literally trying to steal a, a, an election, literally trying to overturn an election, which is what's happening now. It's no longer just uh, let's count the votes, let's see if there's any fraud. Now that it's been clear that there isn't any fraud, now that it's absolutely clear, I mean, in court, Trump's own lawyers have had to repeatedly confirm that there is no fraud in this election. Now it's just, let's just get um, loyalists to overturn state results. And that's not, that's not looking for fraud. That's not counting every vote. That is just fundamentally anti-democratic overturning of an election. And currently right now, you, you and I are talking, obviously, you know, people will hear this later, but right now we're talking on November 20th. Mm-hmm. On November 20th, there are more Republicans in Congress who have COVID than who have accepted the election. Oh my gosh. I haven't heard that stat. That's that's insanity. Yes. So I think if we're going to talk about the current situation, we can't talk about it in any other terms except for the fact that there is a cancer, a festering cancer at the core of our political process. And it is coming almost exclusively from one party. That's not, that can't be up for debate any longer, right? We can't both sides our way out of this fundamental fact any longer. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, after the election week that we all experienced and we started to see various people who on the Christian right are trying to drum up this false narrative, I went back and listened to an interview with Kurt Cameron and Eric Metaxas Hmm. the day after the election. And there was no question, there was no waiting until December 14th. (laughs) (laughs) They were already celebrating. And so so you're absolutely right. This is an entirely one-sided type of assault on our norms and on democracy itself. Yeah. People talk about assault on norms all the time. I want to I want to make sure that people understand what is actually meant by that phrase. When a norm is assaulted, when a norm is overcome, mm-hmm. by definition, you cannot reverse that any longer. Once a norm is shattered, it is shattered forever. Mm-hmm. So people need to understand that this brazen assault on the most basic aspect of a democracy, free and fair elections, the refusal to accept what was not even a close election, right? Not even close, right? is now the new normal. That is now the new normal. There is no going back. Uh, a president who, uh, you know, wins office by muckraking, you know, in the most brazen terms, uh, racist and sexist and violent autocratic tendencies, uh, somebody who repeatedly um, encourages violence against journalists, celebrates violence against journalists, that is unbreakable. Now, that's done now. That's that's the new normal now. We don't go back um, to a previous time, which I think why so many people, particularly um, when it comes to 
you know, the the these, you know, next four years of the Biden um, administration, I think so many people are a little bit nervous about the idea that Joe Biden wants to sort of go back to the way things were. There is no the way things were any longer. Mm-hmm. This is it. This is the new normal. And either the Democrats learn how to play this game um, or we are looking at another generation of minority rule in this country. Right. One of the things that actually ended up helping me at the beginning of this sort of experience we've all had living under the Trump administration here in the United States, one of the things that was helpful and a very helpful framing device for me uh, was actually this conversation that you had on on uh, You Made It Weird with Pete Holmes. One of the things that really struck me was the way you both honed in on the fact that Trump in that campaign and when when he really started you know, defying all of these norms that we're discussing. He had a more like base appeal, like in multiple senses of that word, like broad and vulgar and lewd mm-hmm. um, and how it overshadowed, you know, a cerebral, in air quotes, candidate of Hillary Clinton. I feel like that's only come more into focus in the in the ensuing years. Um, do you think that that's had any other, you know, that sort of base populism, is that here to stay too? Yes. I think, again, talking about what Trump has exposed mm-hmm. about the United States. And, I, and I'm definitely, you know, there's a lot of people who believe that t- Trump is an aberration. That's the Joe Biden argument, right? Trump is an aberration um, and he'll be gone and we'll all go back to the way things were. That's just a lie. It's just not true. Mm-hmm. Uh, Trump uh, is the symptom, you know, of a disease yeah. in this country. I think what people are probably most surprised about is how many millions of us um, long for authoritarianism. You know, the same people who never get tired of talking about the Constitution and how much they love America are, you know, talking about, uh, you know, Trump continuing to be president beyond even two terms. Right. They're perfectly fine Mm -hmm. with that idea. Um, I think that what, and it's it's hard to sort of say that this is Trump's genius because he is fundamentally, whatever else Trump is, he is an absolute moron. I mean, that's <laughs> the greatest, you know, thing that we've got going for us is that he is an unmitigated imbecile. He is an absolute idiot. Um, if he weren't, we'd all be in serious trouble. And, and I mean, that's, I'm not, I know it sounds funny, you know, and it kind of is, I guess, but if he weren't an imbecile, uh, I think we would be in a really scary place right now. But fortunately he is, fortunately, um, you know, and, and the people around him are, are just stupid. And I think what that has shown is that we shouldn't immediately give him credit, you know, as some kind of political genius for being able to tap into certain trends. I think he just kind of, you know, he he's throwing darts and and things stick. Mm-hmm. And what he what so that's it. That's the pro, <laughs> prelude to what I'm about to sure. say. But what he has figured out is that there is a 
very big core of Americans, you know, as he himself very proudly said while he was running for president in 2016, he loves the poorly educated, right, who long for um, a kind of authoritarian figure, right? Um, and that longing has a lot to do with the fact that they themselves feel um, left behind in one way or another. Now, before we go any further, let's stop and talk about what I mean by left behind, because mm -hmm. the 2016 hot takes of economic anxiety, all, all of it turned out to be false, just not true at all. Um, right. It was racial anxiety, which is, again, just a, a fancy term for racism. But nevertheless, I think for those people, um, if what they saw is somebody who shares the same skin color as they do and who manages to speak that that same language that they that they have, and then they were willing to essentially subsume their entire identities into this cult of personality. It's, you know, I mean, I've, I've written a lot about this. I've talked a lot about this. Many, many people have, but there really is only one paradigm through which to truly understand the Trump phenomenon, and that is cult, cult phenomenon. This is a, this is a classic cult in, in so many ways. Um, Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. I'll, I'll, I'll get into this. I mean, I've talked a lot about this, but mm -hmm. let's talk about it now. Sure. Um, okay. First and foremost, uh, let's make sure we understand what we mean by cult, because cult is a derogatory term. Most most scholars of religions do not use the word cult, mm -hmm. um, and there's a whole host of reasons for that. First and foremost, uh, you know, the as as we like to joke sometimes, cult plus time equals religion. So you know, every <laughs> religion that you know now began as a cult. Mm -hmm. uh, it sort of made it. And so now it's a, a religion. Number two, cult is a value judgment. Um, cult is what, you know, you call other people's religions, right? My religion is a religion. Your religion is a cult. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, to this day, there are, you know, millions of Americans who would refer to Mormonism as a cult, despite the fact that it is a massively vibrant, global, beautiful religion with tens of millions of adherents around the world. Mm -hmm. um, that said, when the word cult is used in its academic sense, it means something very specific. It means an insulated, insular group enthralled to one leader and the and the sort of the three or four characteristics of that group are number one an overwhelming sense of siege right a belief that um the world is out to get your group in some way or another right you are under attack number two the issue of uh, or the belief in the righteous minority. Um, people sometimes will, will, you know, have a hard time understanding, you know, especially smaller cults, you know, like, um, like the, um, you know, Heaven's Gate, you know, which was like 13 people or something like that, 20 people, you know, and people will say, what the, like, how could you think that only 20 people are the, the righteous, you know, saved and, and, you know, whatever. Right. Everybody else, like the yeah. seven billion of us are wrong. <laughs> Many of you are right. Yep. And what people don't understand is that 
the cult mentality is predicated on this idea that the smaller the group, right, the more righteous and correct it is, not the opposite of that. Number three, this idea of uh, the collective identity subsuming the individual identity, right? So that your identity uh, becomes, it, it sort of melts into the, the, commun- the communal identity. Mm-hmm. And then number four, and this is the most important one, the notion that um, truth and the access to truth has a single source, and that is the cult leader. This is the, this is key because the way that cult that a cult functions is that it has to cut off alternative um, access to knowledge, right? Alternative sources of knowledge. Truth and knowledge can only come from a single source, and that single source most often is whoever is the leader, right? The leader is that single source of knowledge. Now, why is the leader the single source of knowledge? Because he has access to a secret truth, a truth that is not available to everyone else. The reason this is this sort of the linchpin to a successful cult is because it is very easy to disprove certain claims, you know, made by a cultist. I had the largest inauguration crowd in history. Well, that's not true because I have eyes. Right. right? I, I can yeah. see with my eyes, you know, yeah. I that's not true. Mm-hmm. So why would millions, tens of millions of people believe something that is demonstrably false? Because the leader has access to truth, a secret access to truth that other people don't have. So yeah, it may, you may see something that disproves what I believe, but it doesn't matter because what I believe is based on something secret, a secret source that you don't have access to. Mm-hmm. Um, I just described Trumpism basically, you know, at its core. Yeah. Um, you know, so I think understanding that the way that that sort of Trumpism works as a cult, using the 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 cult paradigm in order to understand and interpret it, allows you to more effectively um, handle it and deal with it. You know, one of the things that people say all the time is engage Trumpists. You know, ar- argue with them, debate them. You, you can't debate a cultist. There's no point in debating a cultist because that cultist isn't um, isn't playing by the same rules mm-hmm. that you, you were playing by. You know, if you say two plus two is four, they'll say, yeah, but it's five because we have a secret knowledge that you don't have. Right. Um, and you know, I, and now I think you're just seeing the example of it. You know, I've I've said before that not only is is this a cult, but it's kind of functions like a death cult. And here we have testimonies from doctors and nurses about how COVID patients who are on death's door, who are breathing their final breaths, still refuse to believe that they have COVID. Mm. You know, there's, there's all this sort of you know really sad and compelling testimony of nurses talking about 
COVID patients basically saying, you know, with their final breaths, <clears throat> this is a scam. It's a conspiracy. There is no COVID. And then dying, right? Mm. Um, you have these super spreader events that people are going to and dying as a result. I think yeah. the, the latest estimate said something like 13,000 deaths um, can be traced to a, a Trump rally or a Trump event. I mean, wow, 13,000. That's 13,000. And now you're at a situation in which by the time, you know, this charade of, it, you know, I actually won the election is over and it starts to settle in to this 70 million or whatever, um, that Trump is not the president, it's over. I think you're going to see profoundly violent acts um, take place um, by, you know, these people who have had their their identity completely subsumed in this cult and have nothing else to do, nothing more to give except their lives and the lives of others in um, trying to prove the truth of what they had believed for the last four or five years. Right. Do you think that Trumpism just tapped into something that was already latent and only just below the surface in, in communities like much of white evangelicalism that is that has very strong strains of Christian nationalism, of populism, of contrarian beliefs around science, around education, that has decades of cultural development behind it. Entire alternative information ecosystems. Yeah. Someone can spend their entire life only interacting with other evangelicals, other 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 people of that stripe. Do you think that that that, you know, as you said, Trump is not intelligent, but he is he he is instinctual for these sorts of things and apparently knows how to take advantage of that and then those other people that might be more take advantage of him in return and they yeah. create they've created this symbiotic mutually beneficial relationship where we've seen uh, you know, I believe it was Tony Perkins at the Family Research Council saying, you know, we used to be on the outside looking in and now we're on the inside looking out. Um, <laughs> speaking in, in regards to the the presence of these types of allies of their social movements and things like that within the Trump administration. Yeah. And in fact, the Trump's relationship with Christian nationalism, I think, is a perfect example of what I was talking about, you know, with to pulling the curtain back. Yeah. Let me, let me say one quick thing. I wouldn't say that Trump had sort of an, an instinctual understanding of Christian nationalism and so used it to his advantage. I think Trump is shameless. The Republican Party, you know, has, has been tapping into Christian nationalism since the 80s, mm -hmm. right? Right. Since Ronald Reagan. Um, Reagan, Bush, uh, you know, these guys did a, a, a very good job of sending coded messages mm -hmm. to the this burgeoning um, Christian nationalist movement by tapping into the so-called culture wars, right? And right. Linking to things like um, abortion or gay marriage. Those things became sort of a key to getting Christian nationalists to marry themselves wholly to the Republican Party. Here's what's changed, is that the culture wars 
are over and they and they lost. Mm-hmm. Right? Abortion is the law of the land, and not even Amy Barrett is going to do anything about it. Um, uh, same-sex marriage is the law of the land, and that's just it. You know, those things are not going to be reversed. Once they are precedent, they are precedent. It's extraordinarily difficult to get rid of them. Mm-hmm. Trump did something, and again, it has to do with just what a complete and utter brainless tool he is. Um, I'm sure some Republican uh, um, strategist said something to the effect of him one day of like, you know, this is a reliably Republican block of voters and, you know, they want you to speak their language. Um, And and I remember this very clearly in 2015 when he was running for office. He interpreted that to mean, oh, so it's just a transactional uh, relationship. You know, it's not a it's not a secret code. I I'm on your side. Right. We share the same morality because Trump is not on the same side. He is a thrice divorced, gluttonous, uh, you know, uh, man who is the living, breathing incarnation of every one of Jesus's woes. Right? Like, <laughs> yeah. if you put them all together into human form, you would have this scumbag. You know, mm-hmm. um, so he's not going to pretend otherwise, right? He's not going to go out there and learn a Bible verse. He didn't even bother, right? <laughs> yeah, two Corinthians book? and from there on. Name, what's your favorite verse? I like it all. <laughs> yeah. Is there any verse, any verse in the Bible that that you know you you uh, are drawn to? No, I, I don't like to play favorites. He said, "I like all of it." Again, he's not going to pretend, mm-hmm. right? that he's some Christian, that he shares their values. So he turns it into what he turns everything else in his life, into a transaction. Trump, in literal terms, promised white Christian evangelicals power in exchange for their support. You have been made powerless, he said. I will give you your power back, he said. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was... It wasn't, you know, uh, coded language. It was a very transactional thing. Um, And it worked, as most people know. I mean, uh, in 2016, he got 81% of white evangelicals to vote for him. That's a record. That's more white evangelicals than voted for George W. Bush, who actually was a white evangelical. Right. I do think it's important always in this stat to remind people that 67% of evangelicals of color voted for Hillary Clinton. These are people who have the same religious beliefs, uh, Mm -hmm. but a different skin tone. So if we're going to have this conversation and pretend, even for a moment, that racism did not play a major role in the support of that 81%, then what's the, there's no point in having this conversation. Right. Four years of, you know, sex with porn stars and locking babies in cages and, uh, you know, trampling on any moral uh, vision that could be even remotely related to Christianity. And he received if you believe the exit polls, uh, the current exit polls, um, 76% of the white evangelical vote. So he lost 5% Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. 5% of this group saw the last four years and said, yeah, that's, that's the Christ-like behavior that I want to have emulated. In, in the, I mean, 5% looked at that and said, that's not what I want. Right. 76% said, yeah, that's, that's what I want. That's, the, that's what I see as the Christ-like behavior that should be emulated um, you know, at, at the White House. That's astonishing. Mm-hmm. So the question is, what is what is going on? So first and foremost, race is an issue. Let's stop pretending. Racism has always been an integral facet of the white of the Christian nationalist movement in the United States. It's always been there. It goes all the way back to the days of slavery. But more importantly, you have an a, a group that feels as though they, as I say, lost, you know, the culture wars. And someone showed up and said, uh, I will give you power in exchange for your soul, essentially, you know, sell your soul to the devil. Mm-hmm. And I'll give you the political power you so want. Um, and because Trump himself has no morals, because he is absolutely vacuous, right? This is a soulless man who will, who really cared about nothing but himself, you know, for all of his life. He's more than willing to just simply take um, his marching orders from Christian nationalists. I mean, look at the difference between George W. Bush, again, George W. Bush is a white Christian evangelical, is a Christian nationalist. Mm -hmm. George W. Bush believes that America is a was founded as a Christian nation, is supposed to be a Christian nation, and its laws should be based on Christian values. That's the, the core fundamental belief of Christian nationalism. The difference is, is that George W. Bush has more morals. And so, yes, he did uh, run on a very anti-LGBT agenda, mm-hmm. but then didn't enact any of that anti-LGBT um, uh, policies right? Just wouldn't enact it. Um, He's a, you know, standard Republican politician. You, uh, you know, wave to the, to those groups. You say, I'm on your side. They vote for you. And then, you know, you ignore them basically. Right. But since Trump has no moral code whatsoever, he just simply, again, transactional, just said, what do you want? You don't want trans people to serve in the military? even though there's literally no reason whatsoever for, for that ban, okay, I'll ban them. You know, you want aid taken away from any international organization that even says the word abortion? Sure, done. Because he doesn't care. Mm-hmm. You see what I mean? He has yeah. no moral code. So it's just, it's just, it's, it's purely transactional. Mm-hmm. You give me your support, I will give you unfettered power. Right. The evangelical leaders who who rallied to his cause tried to paper over things by calling him King Cyrus or, you know, something of that nature and him being him being a secular leader um, chosen by God. Yeah. Ironically, they're never they never choose a Democrat. It's it's funny how that works. <laughs> well, it's just hilarious that it's like the, the King David and the King Cyrus stuff were so offensive. I, it's just hard to believe that that Christians would hear that, you know, and, and accept it, you know, that, that, 
it's just, it's just, I don't know, again, cult. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those Old Testament narratives are, or Hebrew Bible narratives are applied very specifically in those communities. And so it fit right in. Mm-hmm. I do want to turn back to, you know, talking about Trump supporters. You know, there's at least 70 million of them here. Um, and one of the things that you've, you've written about before is something that, that you term like the, the geography of identity. You've written about that within the context of fundamentalism, both in the Muslim world mm-hmm. and elsewhere. One of the things you you talk about is, is like a transnational identity and also the way language is used to frame good and evil. Like our opponents are evil and we are good. And those narratives are very similar to what's been inculcated in even so-called respectable forms of evangelicalism, definitely yeah. in, in different movements that push a Christian nationalist framing or agenda. So what is the makeup of or the geography of identity of Trumpism and anything else related to it, including some things like Christian nationalism? Well, let's go back a little bit and let's talk about religious nationalism um, as a global phenomenon. Mm-hmm. I think that's where we need to start this conversation because the truth of the matter is that what's happening in America is not unique. You have to really begin first with the sort of inevitable consequence of globalization, which is that in trying to reconstitute the world as a single global order. Mm-hmm. Now, again, let's be clear. When we talk about globalism, we're talking about first and foremost an economic phenomenon. That's why, that's where the term arose. We're talking about free market trade. We're talking about interdependent trade relationships. We're talking about the free flow of goods. Um, But the free flow of goods and interdependent trade relationships necessarily implies the diminishing of national identities and national borders. Mm -hmm. Okay. As you begin to assault the very concept of nationality, of secular nationalism as, a, as an idea, right, the, the prevailing the philosophy, the, polit- the prevailing political philosophy of the 20th century, what you are doing is um, subtly encouraging people to start thinking beyond nationalism as a way of defining their collective identity, to look for alternative means of identifying the collective. Mm -hmm. And it's only natural that as people, consciously or not, begin to do so, they will fall back on more primal forms of collective identity. And the most primal form, besides ethnicity, I would say, perhaps, mm-hmm. is religion. Right. Religion was the first collective identity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so all around the world, what we have seen in the 21st century, as we have been confronted with not just the absolute failure of secular nationalism to provide any of the promises of peace and prosperity, you know, that it made, um, and the assault of globalization mm-hmm. on, you know, the, the very concept of the nation state. As those things began to, you know, really take a toll, what you saw was people all around the world 
beginning to identify themselves for the first time, really, first and foremost, not in terms of their national identity, but in terms of their religion. Mm -hmm. And you see this in Israel, right? Where for what is quickly becoming a majority of Israeli citizens, Jewish identity is superseding Israeli identity, right? The notion of a secular Israeli, of a secular Israel uh, has become uh, marginalized in favor of this larger uber identity of a Jewish homeland, right? Which was not part of the original founding of Israel. That's now, I would say, the majority view in, in Israel. It took decades to get there, but that's what you see now. Look at India. India is currently ruled by a party, the BJP, um, whose entire political philosophy rests on this notion of Hindutva or Hindu nationalism, that India is a Hindu country. It was founded as a Hindu country. It is a country in which Hinduism uh, should be the, you know, the state religion and that all laws should be predicated on Hindu ideas, Hindu norms, Hindu values. Um, there are large parts of the Middle East in which Islam is playing that role. There are more people in Egypt who would say, I am Muslim and then I'm Egyptian than the other way around today, which wasn't the case, you know, in the, 20, in the in mid 20th century. Mm -hmm. That's happening now here in the United States and has been for quite some time. The great irony about Christian nationalism in the United States is despite the fact that it drapes itself in the flag, it is not a nationalistic ideology. It is certainly not patriotic, right? I mean, patriotism means, you know, an adherence to the, the laws and ideals of the nation and the very foundation of Christian nationalism in trying to impose one religious ideology upon everyone else. And indeed, it proactively trying to remove religious rights from other minority religions is by definition in violation of the constitution and therefore of American ideals. These are not patriots, on the contrary. Their, their allegiance is not to the United States. Their allegiance is to their Christian identity. And they would say, increasingly, that one-third, right, that's the, 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 the sort of this, what the data indicates, is that about a third of, the, of Americans uh, identify as Christian nationalists. By the way, that's 125 million people. Can we stop and just say that for a moment here? A hundred, about 120 million Americans call themselves Christian nationalists, meaning that their adherence is to this ideology of the state as founded upon, predicated on, and uh, necessarily abiding by their particular brand of Christianity. Mm -hmm. So, that's the first thing. Understand that the rise of Christian nationalism in the United States is not an isolated phenomenon, okay? 
It's the, it's the same religious nationalism that we are seeing in uh, Muslim majority countries, in Jewish majority countries, uh, in Hindu majority countries. It's happening all around the world, not just here in the United States. This, and it has to do, as I say, with this sort of fundamental reimagining of collective identity at a time in which nationalism, secular nationalism, um, is beginning to kind of fade away. Mm-hmm. So that, that, I think, has to be a pivotal part of our conversation when it comes to Trump. Because there's a great sociologist by the name of Samuel Perry, who I think would be great on your show, by the way. I've had um, him on the show. <laughs> oh, you have? Well, okay. yeah. Great, great. I had, I had Sam and Andrew on the show to talk about their book. So Yeah, I'm a big, big fan of, big fan of theirs. But mm-hmm. I think what they have, what they have really... Um, figured out, I think, in no uncertain terms, is that adherence to Christian nationalist ideology is the strongest predictor Mm -hmm. of support for Trump. Yep. Right? So more than race, more than gender, more than whatever, more than anything else, right? The strongest predictor of support for Trump is um, Christian nationalism. So this intersection of racism, um, anti-democratic ideologies, uh, uh, evangelical, um, you know, um, proclivities, and Christian national uh, uh, identity—that yeah. is the sort of cauldron out of which Trumpism um, has arisen. So, this is a very long way of answering your question, which is that this stuff was here long before Trump. Mm-hmm. It is a global phenomenon. It has, you know, deep-seated um, reasons for its existence, and it had always been used and manipulated by politicians uh, for political reasons, and by the way, by business people. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, these groups are funded by the Mercers, uh, by the Cokes. The Mercers are not Christian nationalists. The Cokes are not Christian nationalists. Right. Right. These guys know that they have a, you know, a hundred and something million sheep that they can just continue to feed, you know, anger to, and they'll vote for um, policies that very likely are a benefit to the Cokes and the Mercers and not a benefit, you know, to the actual Christian nationalists themselves. Right. They've been manipulated for a very long time. The, the, the big difference, as I say here, is that Trump in his simplistic, vacuous, you know, mind uh, just thought, oh, this is a group. Well, then let's just go and get them and just give them what they want and they'll give us what I want. Uh, you know, he treated it like any any business deal, right? He doesn't have the sophistication to be subtle about it. What do you want? Power? It's yours. You tell me whatever you want, I will do and you vote for me because I have no moral compass. Mm-hmm. You've been an outspoken critic of Trump and Trumpism for a long time on these platforms. And before that, even even before this Trump era, your work on your book Zealot was mischaracterized terribly on Fox News, and that whole event went viral. What is the the role and responsibility of media overall, as well as in particular conservative media, in normalizing and creating a stage in which this sort of rhetoric, you know, norms being broken, uh, wonky people will say the Overton window is shifted and everything. 
What is their role in, in allowing or contributing to making this type of president even possible? Yeah, um, I have some I have some complex views uh, on this topic. Um, first of all, I don't think we should refer to Fox News, for instance, as conservative media, right? Conservative media is the Wall Street Journal or the Washington Examiner, right? They mm-hmm. have standards that they have to um, apply, even if they have a unquestionable and unapologetic, uh, you know, political bent. Fox News is state propaganda. Um, it it is uh, a white nationalist platform. Mm-hmm. You know that's what it is. So you can't you can't put it in the same category as say the Wall Street Journal, for instance, or the or even the Washington Examiner. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing is that there is a there's a sort of a, a big debate. At least there used to be a big debate, I think, um, about whether the media manipulates people into believing certain things or the media just gives people what they want, what, you know, basically just um, confirms what they already believe. Mm -hmm. I have always been in the latter camp. Um, As someone who used to work pretty, you know, um, extensively in the media and who doesn't anymore at all on purpose, um, I can tell you that the media is for solely a commercial enterprise that what they care about is eyeballs and commercials that the reason CNN and MSNBC and Fox news exist is to sell Viagra. Mm-hmm. Now, That is not to say that the journalists at those places are there in order to sell Viagra. There's a difference between the media as an institution, as a corporation, and the employees of that corporation who are doing marvelous work. But the corporation exists to sell products. That's why it exists. I often joke sometimes that if you're if your you know news comes with commercials, it's not news. Pretty simple. Mm. If your news comes with commercials, it's not news. It's entertainment. Mm-hmm. So the idea of selling products begins first and foremost, as any business person will tell you. My wife is a successful businesswoman. She she knows this. She tells me this all the time. Is the last thing that you want to do is create a product that appeals to everyone. Because if it appeals to everyone, that means it appeals to no one. Mm -hmm. That true success is to find a niche and then give that niche what they want. Um, You can most definitely blame Murdoch and Fox News for the destruction of our planet, um, the death of democracies around the world. They have played a huge role in that. But they have played a huge role in that by giving people what they want. Mm. They have a product and they have an audience, they have buyers of that product. And the more they realize how, how valuable that product is and how large that audience is for it, the more of that product that they will create, right? If I make a toothpaste uh, and it's a, it's a, 
you know, particular flavored toothpaste for a particular community, and that community just can't get enough of it, and it gets larger and larger, I'm going to make more toothpaste. We, we need to stop thinking of the media in these lofty terms, right? You can have an enormous amount of respect for journalists, but the media is just a commercial enterprise selling a product to buyers. And whatever the buyers want, mm-hmm. that's what they will sell. If CNN thought it could make money having Jake Tapper juggle cats for 25 minutes, Jake Tapper would be juggling cats. <laughs> as simple as that. Before we start to uh, crap on Fox News, and there's many reasons to crap on that, <laughs> uh, let's stop and think about the fact that they are providing a service for which there is clearly a demand. Mm-hmm. So maybe the problem is with the demand. Right. The problem is that there are tens of millions of Americans uh, who want this stuff. And there are, when there's somewhere, when whatever there's a demand for, there's somebody willing to peddle it for money. Mm-hmm. So, okay, yeah, let's blame Murdoch for, you know, profiting off of hatred and bigotry and white nationalism and destabilization. Yes, but he didn't create those things. Mm-hmm. He didn't create that audience. Right. Yeah, and that's a that's an important distinction. And I, I think how you phrased that and how you said that the, the primary concern is eyeballs and engagement. We do see that play out again in these these newer platforms like Facebook, which is also just driven primarily by engagement. One of the things that has driven lots of engagement on Facebook is things like like QAnon that has been ascribed conspiratorial and cultish sort of behaviors. And that sort of phenomenon of it becoming a vector, and that to me is the thing that I'm I'm interested in when I when I think about the media and the role of the media is its reach. But then we see that being displaced or added to by things like just different networks that, that grow up on, on top of these social networks. I don't know if you've seen this alarming trend about conservative approval ratings for Fox News plummeting since, yeah. since the election. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because they did one journalistic thing and they called the election for, for Joe Biden. Yeah. Fox News is learning what the Saudis learned. <laughs> right, what everybody learns, which is that if you feed fundamentalism, it will eventually eat you. Mm. There is no controlling fundamentalism, right? You can try to profit off it. You could, you know, all that stuff, but you know, it will eventually bite the hand that feeds it. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, for those of us who, I think rightly loathe Fox for what it is. This is this is very sweet to watch this happen. <laughs> to watch, you know, Fox's base turning on it because, um, yeah, because of Trump. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I I I used to joke all the time that what what Donald Trump doesn't understand is that Fox doesn't work for him. He works for Fox. Mm-hmm. Um. And now I'm starting to think, maybe I'm wrong about that. Like, I, you know, like we'll see. We'll see. Uh, it could be that I'm wrong about mm-hmm. this. It could actually be that Fox works for Trump. And we're about to find out what happens 
you know, when Trump takes his show elsewhere. Yeah. You've talked about your own experience within evangelicalism when you, your family emigrated to America. What have you seen change within those expressions of Christianity here in all of those ensuing years that has made space made space for it to be open and apparent for people within these religious groups to proudly proclaim support for someone like Trump? Like, I'm curious what you've seen and what you think has contributed to that. And what are your hopes for where things go from here and how we think we might be able to beat back this type of fascistic turn that we're seeing that is enabled by Christian nationalists and try to develop the sort of pluralistic society that America wants to think that it actually is, but it's not there yet. Let me ask this. Let me answer the second part first, because I think it's a very important point. To me, I think that um, the thing that gives me the most hope is that there is a large and powerful and extremely young contingent of um, liberal evangelicals in this country that for much of the last 20, 30 years has been toothless and irrelevant in the sort of the larger conversations about American evangelicalism, partly because they didn't really have a coherent message, mm-hmm. right? Their, their, their message wasn't that, you know, it's one thing to say, well, no, I'm a, I'm an evangelical Christian, but I believe that, you know, gay people should be able to have the same rights as, as straight people. That's a compelling message, but it's not going to get through in any meaningful way to the rest of the evangelical community or to say that I'm an, I'm an evangelical, but I believe that women's reproduction issues are, are a matter of, you know, for women to decide mm-hmm. um, and not the state. That's not, that's not a, a winning argument. What Trump has done, <laughs> right. Uh, in breaking um, the, the sort of the veneer um, of the, the right wing sort of white um, evangelical Christianity, Christian nationalism in the United States, is that it has create, he has created this avenue for liberal evangelicalism to make a powerful argument. The kind of argument, frankly, that evangelical communities tend to latch on to and it's a similar argument. It's a you'll you'll it's when when I make this argument, it'll sound familiar to you, mm-hmm. which is that we have been corrupted by the outside. There is a, sort of a cancer growing within us, and this small persecuted group um, inside this community is the righteous is the righteous. Um, few, right? We're the right ones. We're the correct ones. Mm. That's a, that's always been an appealing argument to any fundamentalist group, but certainly evangelicals. Yeah. And in this case, it's a very easy argument to make when you look at Jeffers or when you look at, you know, Franklin Graham, you know, when you, when you look at how far these Trumpist Christians have been willing to denigrate the most basic parts of their faith and values 
um, in order to support, uh, uh, again, the, you know, the, the least Christian president America has ever had. You know, that, that alone, I think, is, is, is fact enough. Mm-hmm. Suddenly that argument becomes very compelling. The best, the best example of what I'm talking about is the civil war that erupted at Liberty University. Now, if you're a Liberty University student, right, you're already at the very fringes of, of the, the white evangelical community already, right? But to have those kids rise up in protest mm-hmm. um, against their faculty, the president of the university, to ultimately get him thrown out of that university is astonishing, right? And I think when I look at sort of this community and the next 10, 20 years or so, that's what I hold on to as as a sign of optimism, that there is now a viable path for, you know, left-wing, liberal, uh, yet faithful evangelical Christians who may not have the same views on same-sex marriage or abortion, right, to make a compelling argument about why the right in their community has abandoned Jesus, has abandoned their faith. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that depending on, you know, how robust they can be and how loud and vocal they can be, this could really steer the future of evangelicalism in the United States. Hmm. So that's that's where my hope rests. Yeah. Reza, thank you so much for, for joining me and talking through some of these things. It's been a real pleasure to talk about all these elements of, of what we've gone through over the last few years and try to put all of this into context and establish where, um, where we might go from here. Um, where can people find you online? Where can they find your books or anything else you might want to mention here? Well, uh, you could find me at rezaaslan.com. Um, and, um, you know, my books are kind of available everywhere. And uh, see, what am I working on now? I'm trying to do some TV work, which I think is uh, really important. I really do believe that TV is kind of the, the primary means of reframing people's perceptions. So, mm. That'll give um, me an opportunity to put some of these things that I'm trying to do, you know, into the world out there. Um, I do think that, you know, Trump may be gone, but Trumpism is here to stay. And so those of us who are truly worried about this existential um, threat to not just our country, but in my case, my actual family, Mm -hmm. um, you know, we got to use whatever tools we can um, in order to not reach out to them, not change their minds, but to dull their message mm-hmm. um, and to and to sway those people in the middle um, from, you know, uh, believing it and accepting it. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I'm glad you're out there doing, doing that work. And uh, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about these issues. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Blake. That's a wrap on season one of Powers and Principalities.
Thank you to everyone who appeared on the show, and thank you so much for listening. A very special thank you goes out to my producer, Jake Lewis, without whom this series would not have been possible. Jake also produced the fantastic intro music you hear at the top of each show. Thank you so much, Jake, for all your work on editing and mixing this series, even through some very difficult technical difficulties. The next season of Powers and Principalities is scheduled for 2021, and in that I will be turning my attention to white evangelicalism and media. Those of us who grew up in the culture know that you can live your whole life consuming only evangelically approved media. We'll explore what that means for people in politics next year. In the meantime, you can keep up with me on Twitter at BRChastain, on Instagram at BRChastain underscore, and you can sign up for my newsletter, The Post-Evangelical Post, for more long-form missives at postevangelicalpost.substack.com. Thank you again for listening. Talk to you soon.